Welcome to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Ethan Fawcett, and I'm a ministry resident here at Rolling Hills. Today, we're coming to the close of our series, Refine. Throughout this series, we've been taking a deep dive into the seven deadly sins, and in today's message, we're looking at the seventh and final sin, pride. In Proverbs 16, we read that pride comes before destruction. If we aren't constantly on alert and aware of where our hearts are, pride can slowly infiltrate many aspects of our lives. So to combat the sin of pride, we can grow in another way, in our humility. Our hope is that today's message will challenge and equip us as we continue to grow to be more like Jesus. Thanks for joining us today. singing with you. You sounded great this morning, and I really enjoy seeing that last song. I, I don't, I'm not sure what it was called, but it was a enjoy singing hallelujah. I just that, that word meaning praise the Lord, just to, just to say that again and again, just to, to be able to lift up our voices and say praise the Lord is good to do together. If you have your Bibles, uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to jump in. Proverbs chapter 16, uh, verse 18 is going to be our text for this morning. If you've been around for the past couple of weeks, you know that we've been working through a series called Refine, where we're looking at the seven deadly sins. We've gone through lust and gluttony. Uh, we've done greed and sloth and wrath and envy. Uh, and it's been a fun, a fun adventure. I mean, every week, it's just like, you know, I get to the beginning of the week and I'm like, all right, let's get ready. I'm like, I probably don't struggle with this. And so like, this will be a good week. And then by the end of the week, I'd just beaten up and I'm really glad to share it with you. Um, so it's not just me that's uh, w- worn out. So this week we're going to cover pride. And, and, you know, in the seven deadly sins, what we talked about each week is what we said, this, this phrase of, of the sedly, seven deadly sins are considered to kind of be the, the root from which a host of un, other sinful attitudes and actions grow. That the seven deadly sins are kind of that headwater of where, where, sin, where sin originates. And, but we also recognize that all sin is deadly. That all sin is deadly and it, and, it, and it destroys the life that God meant for his creation to live. And, and as we've opened up God's word over the past seven weeks and, and looked at God's word in relation to these seven deadly sins, what we've asked is that by God's grace, he would refine us, right? And that we might have freedom and hope as we shine the light of God's word on our hearts and, and in our minds. And so that's, that's what we've been doing over the past several weeks And as we turn to pride this week, we're going to ask the same questions. If you have your worship guide, we're going to ask the same questions that we've been asking. What is pride? What is the sin that we've looked at? We've asked the same thing about greed and sloth and wrath. What is pride and what is pride doing to us? If it is sinful, then it's doing something to us. And then finally, we want to ask the question of what has Christ done and what is our response? What does the Bible tell us? What does Scripture tell us to do in response to what Christ has done? And so 
together, I'm going to read this passage and then we'll jump in. Again, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18 says this, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for time to sing your, sing songs about you and sing songs celebrating all that you've done. To be reminded of the fact that you did go to the cross, that you forsook glory, that you, you laid down your life, that we could have life. We thank you that we get to open up your word. And God, today as we sing and as we open up your word, we pray by the power of your spirit that you would work here. God, I, I can preach, we can sing songs, we can lead people and point people to you, but only you can transform hearts. And we pray that you would do that this morning as we open up your word together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So one of my favorite, growing up, one of my favorite activities on a Saturday morning was not cartoons. It wasn't to watch cartoons, snorkels, anybody? Anybody remember that? Fraggle Rock, anybody? Yeah. That was not my favorite. My favorite wasn't to go to Krispy Kreme and pick up donuts, like a donut run with my dad. I, I mean, like, that was cool. That wasn't my favorite thing to do. My favorite thing to do was to pull weeds. Pull weeds. That's what I enjoyed. And we had, we had you know, gardens or, you know, flower bushes, flower whatever things. And, and so getting up Saturday morning, 90-degree southern Louisiana weather, and going outside and hands and knees, just digging weeds out of the garden or out of that flower bed was, I mean, it was top-notch fun. And if you believe that, then I have a pyramid scheme I would like you to join me in and make some money for me. I hated, like, I hated it. I hated pulling weeds. It was, it, I mean, it felt like punishment, although it wasn't. I mean, my parents didn't do it because they were punishing me. It was just like, hey, character building, I think. Maybe that was it. But you, you have to go outside and pull the weeds. And, and, and one reason I hated it was because it, it, was, it was always hot. You know, we never pulled weeds in the winter, which in South Louisiana is like 50 degrees, which would have been pretty, pretty awesome. Right? We always pulled weeds when it was hot. It was, it was murder hot, right? And, and it was also, by the time you finished the flower bed, it felt like all the weeds that you pulled came back and they brought friends. <laughs> it was miserable. So you knew the next week you were going to have to do the same thing. It was torture. It, it, Charles Spurgeon says this about pride. He says, pride is a weed that can grow anywhere. Pride can grow on a rock just as well as it can in a garden. Pride grows in the hearts of the highest and loftiest in the world just as easily as it does in the poorest and the lowly. Pride can sprout inside a beggar's rags and a prince's robe. Pride is a strange weed. It never objects to its lodging. It will live comfortably enough in the palace and live equally as well in the slums. It needs cutting down every week, every day unless we should stand in it up to our knees. So we talk about pride. What, what is pride? And, and, you know, there's quotes, all, all, plenty of quotes that talk about John, Jason Meyer uh, writes this. He says, pride is a cosmic crime. 
It stands alone atop of the list of deadly sins. John Stott, a writer, uh, old pastor and writer, says this, that pride is the essence of all sin. Jonathan Edwards says that it's the most hidden and secret and deceitful of all sins. And if you have your worship guide, the definition we're going to kind of work from, what is pride? Pride is the preoccupation with self and the rebellious desire for supremacy of our own lives. Pride is the preoccupation with self and the rebellious desire for supremacy of our own lives. When we talk about preoccupation, it's pride is this unhealthy distortion, right? This unhealthy, distorted preoccupation with self where we turn inside. Pride causes us to constantly be consumed with ourselves, to see ourselves as the center of the universe that everything else revolves around. And there's one, something that happens in our culture that I would say really epitomizes what pride and this preoccupation, this, this self-look is in, in our culture. And, and it's, maybe you've heard of this, it's the selfie, right? Have you ever taken a selfie? Don't lie. You know you have. Even if it was way back when, when you didn't have a camera that faced you and you turned it around and you got like half your face, you still took them. The word selfie actually hit the Oxford Dictionaries in 2013. That was just after Apple introduced the, 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 the camera that would face you and you could hold it up and take a true selfie. And, but long before Facebook and all of those social media platforms, the American photographer Robert Cornelius is credited with taking the first selfie in 1839. And side note, he was not flexing in a mirror. Not flexing in the gym mirror. And then 1914, there was a 13-year-old, a 13-year-old girl, a Russian duchess named Anastasia something, <clears throat> who took a picture of herself using this camera and she sent it to a friend. This is it. The camera is actually in her hand. She stood in the mirror and she took the picture and she sent the picture with, to a friend and she wrote this, this note. So, so she wrote, she said, I took this picture of myself looking in the mirror. It was very hard and my hands were trembling. So this right here, what you're seeing, is truly the first teenager to take a selfie and post it or share it with someone else. This was it. This is the genesis of that, 1914. But today, it's estimated that 93 million selfies are taken every day. That's a thousand selfies a second. If you have teenagers, you may think that's a little low, but that's... It's the estimation. The average person takes over 450 selfies a year. That's 54 hours a year that someone takes or spends taking selfies. The average millennial, I'm not picking on millennials. It's the, it was the statistic that I grabbed here, takes over 25,000 selfies throughout their lifetime. And did you know that in the six-year span between 2013 and 2018, I can't find any newer stuff, that there were over 250 individuals who died as a result of taking selfies. That makes, that makes dying from selfies more of an issue than dying from a shark attack. Truly, selfies are more dangerous than sharks. That's what that says. 
And it screams an unhealthy preoccupation with self. And when we talk about this, there's, there's some different types of this pride and this preoccupation with self. And, and just to kind of split it into two, is, is the one is the puffed up pride or puffed up preoccupation, right? It's the, that's the self-exclamation or the self-exaltation, self-promotion, the I can handle it or I don't need it. I don't need help. I've got it. This is that faithless, prayerless, kind of conceited pride or self-focus. It, there, there, it's also that, that puffed up pride is that, that I'm above that and that those rules don't apply to me. This is the kind of pride that, that got Dave, King David in trouble in, Samuel, in, in, in 2 Samuel when, when everybody else, all the kings go out to war, but he stayed at home and then Bathsheba and then all the other things, right? That those rules don't apply to me. I'm above that that I'm better than you or I know better than you. That's the pride that Jesus addresses in the Pharisees throughout the gospel. This puffed up pride is one of the, one of the aspects of one of those ways that we kind of are self-focused or self-preoccupied. Uh, and the other is the deflated pride. And this is that kind of tearing down, that self-degradation or self-condemnation that, that w- what it says, rather than kind of raising a glass and toasting our success, what this kind of pride does is, is, is it talks, it throws a pity party and muses over the things that they don't do as well as other people or how we have it harder than other people. But both of them, ironically, when you think about the deflated pride, you kind of like, well, that sounds weird to be, to liken that to pride, but the this self-demotion or self-condemnation is sometimes, not all the time, sometimes like a sneaky form of an attempt to get, to, to attempt to find affirmation and reassurance from others. And so it's pride in the same way. It's pride in that it's center. What it, when you remove the mask of this self-degradation or this deflated pride, the, the center of it is the self in both in both the puffed up pride and this deflated pride, the center, the problem is that we're always pointing to ourself, a preoccupation with self. And there's one more layer of this pride outside of the preoccupation. We said it in the definition, it's that rebellion. That it's the rebellious desire for supremacy of our own lives. And, and this goes all the way back, honestly, not just, to, not, not just to the Gospels. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Because what we see even in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3 is Adam and Eve, the, God, the pinnacle of God's creation, are in God's place. That he's placed them in the Garden of Eden and he's providing everything for them. But the serpent sneaks in and whispers lies into their ears and says, and says that God, God is not telling you the truth. And these lies that he tells tells them, causes them to question God's goodness and his faithfulness. And it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, that when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, even though God had already said, don't eat that fruit, she took it and she ate it. She gave it some to her husband who was there with her and he ate it. So those questions of doubt birthed this prideful rebellion where they said, God, I know better than you. And I'm going to take control of the, what's happening in my life. I need you to move over so that I can have supremacy over my life. I know you said this isn't good, but I believe that I know better than you what's good for me. It's a rebellious desire, a rebellious desire for supremacy of our own lives that happened in Genesis. And since that moment, every one of us, is born into a world, born into a world of prideful self-centeredness. 
Every one of us wrestles with this same idea of trying to foolishly contend for God's throne. And this is why, this is why pride is not just one, another sin among the, all the other sins or the other seven deadly sins. It's really in a category all of its own because other sins really just lead us away from Christ. But what, what pride does is try to put us on the throne and elevate us above God. One leads us away, but pride says, no, I'm going to be above you because I know better than you. That's why it sits in a, in a category all by itself. And, and if that's what's happening to us, this preoccupation, this dangerous preoccupation with self and this rebelliousness against the God and the supremacy of rebellion and supremacy of our seeking supremacy of our own lives and rebellion against the God of all creation, what is it doing to us? What's, what's this pride doing to us? And, and I, I, there's three things that, that you can fill out right here in your, in your worship guide. It's, that it's deceiving us, it's destroying us, and it's putting us on a collision course with the God of the universe. It's deceiving us, it's destroying us, and it's putting us on a collision course with the God of the universe. And so, what do, what do we mean by deceiving us? The, the, the reality is that same crafty serpent who snuck into the Garden of Eden is, and whispered lies into Adam and Eve's ear is whispering lies into ours every day. He's deceiving us. Pride deceives us by causing us to forget or question who God is and all that he's done. Pride deceives us by, by, by thinking or, or looking at God and saying, I, I don't really believe that you have done all the things that you say you've done. And, and, and I believe that I know better than you. We forget all the things, we forget who he is and all the things that he's done for us. Pride deceives us by causing us to have a lack of confidence in God and a surplus of confidence in self. It deceives us by making, it, making us lack the confidence in God for who he is and what he's done and put a lot more confidence in this. Now, I mean, there's a lot of reason to have confidence and that's false. That surplus of confidence is a deceptive idea. It's a deceptive reality that all of us wrestle with. It's deceiving us, but it's also destroying us. We read just a second ago, the song, Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. And the word destruction in that passage literally means broken, crushed, fractured, like a bone that is shattered. And it's meant to kind of give this appalling, painful description of what pride does because it's devastating. It's deadly. It's destroying us. It destroys us as individuals. Because, I, because what pride does is it isolates us from other folks, from other people. It pushes them away. It keeps them at arm's length. And it, it keeps us from realizing our need for help or asking for help when others are ready to help us. What pride does to those that love us or are ready to, to help us it, 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 when we're depressed or lonely or overwhelmed, what it says is, is that I don't need your help. I can handle it. It pushes them away and says, I've got it, or I don't want to talk about it, or there's nothing wrong. But it isolates us, so it destroys us because we were meant for relationships. And when we're in relationships, it destroys relationships. A counselor I read while preparing this week said this about pride. She 
She was asked the question of what does she see, what is the problem that she sees most in her counseling sessions, and thinking the response would be something along the lines of what most of us would expect, of like depression, anxiety, anger, or relational conflicts. The counselor replied, she said this, she said, most often those things are just symptoms of what really the problem is that I see the most often in, in those counseling sessions, and it comes down to pride. Because pride destroys marriages. Pride causes us to be angry and anxious and depressed. It destroys families and friendships because pride leaves no room to apologize. It leaves, leaves no room to admit wrong because pride is so self-centered that it leaves no room to listen to others. It leaves no room to care for others and to serve and love others. So it destroys relationship with others. It isolates us in, from relationships and in relationships. It destroys those relationships, but ultimately it destroys our relationship with the Creator. C.S. Lewis says that pride is a completely anti-God state of mind. Pride destroys our relationship with God because it rejects our need for God. Because we believe we can handle it ourselves, it leaves no room to call out to God, to, to say, I need you in the midst of our, in the midst of our struggles. When, when we know that there's, there's something wrong, we don't cry out foolishly. We keep we don't cry out and say, God, rescue me. So that's why God hates pride, because truly pride is destroying his creation. That same counselor that I quoted just a second ago says this, that pride is a prison that perpetuates anger and hurt and loneliness and depression. It perpetuates foolishness while keeping, us, keeping at bay the restorative effects of conviction and humility and reconciliation. She continues, she said, God tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty eye, haughty spirit before the fall. So not only is pride our jailer, but it is also our executioner. It destroys us. It destroys us. And it puts us on a collision course with the God of the universe. James 4 says God opposes the proud in Proverbs, it says, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud. And listen to Isaiah. It says this. And it, tune in because we need to hear these words. It says, the Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. Skipping down to verse 17, it says this. The arrogance of man will be brought low, the human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Here's the thing. What pride does is this, this foolish attempt to try to take over the throne. To say, I want to be on the throne. I'm the supreme ruler of my life. You need to step away. It destroys it. But, but what God tells us in John, the Apostle John gives us a picture in Revelations of, of Revelation of what it looks like at the end of time when all the tribes and tongues and nations are standing before the throne. He says this, and I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. For every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people, and language were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. John says there's a multitude of people there. 
Every, every color of skin, every, every language is there. The great multitude, too many to count, that are standing before the throne. But there is only one on the throne. And if we don't figure that out, we're on a collision course with the God of the universe who will be on the throne. And we'll either remove ourselves or he'll remove us. Because at the end of time, all that great multitude is not sharing the throne with the Father. He alone sits on it. So there's a wake-up call for us to recognize that he is the only one who will sit on the throne for eternity. And if we don't figure it out, we're on a collision course with him. And so we ask then the third question, what has Christ done for us? And then what is our response? What does the Bible, what does Scripture tell us to do in response to what is Christ, what Christ has done? If you remember, if you've been around, you, you remember these, these words. This is kind of the first time you've heard it. Just We've talked about this every week, that, that between the road between the vice and the virtue, in this case, pride and humility, that the road between vice and virtue is blocked unless we go through the victory of Jesus Christ. That the only way for us to move from pride to humility, which is what God's called us to, is to go through the victory of Jesus Christ. Pulling up our bootstraps and figuring it out on our own is only going to continue and perpetuate that pride. It's falling and surrendering and saying, God, I can't, but you can. It all comes through the victory of Jesus. So what has Christ done for us? Christ has come in humility. He's shattered pride by grace. He brings restoration and establishes us a pattern to live by. He comes in humility and he shatters pride by grace. He brings restoration and establishes a pattern for us to live by. We're going to use one passage to kind of work through these. Philippians chapter 2, he comes in humility. It says in verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used in his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the, the nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself. Christ humbled himself. He had every right to come in, in all the power and the might of who he is as the second person of the Trinity, as the creator and the sustainer of all things. He had every right to come and throw his weight around, but rather than doing that, he put on flesh and humbled himself and came to us. And in doing so, he shatters pride by grace, becoming obedient. The rest of verse 8 says he, he being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. By him laying down his life, he becomes, he shatters pride with grace. One of my favorite hymns is written by a hymn writer named Isaac Watts in 1707. The hymn is Wondrous Cross, and the opening lines, the opening stanza of the, of the hymn says this, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but lost. But listen, and pour contempt on all my pride. Why do I treat my pride with contempt? Because of grace. 
because of grace, because grace, has, grace is a crushing blow to our pride. The doctrine of grace, the reality that Christ came and did for us what we could not do for ourselves, crushes the idea, crushes reality of pride in all of our hearts. It's God who is the one who saves us. God is the only one who gets the glory. Grace directs our attention away from me and solely puts it on Christ. We become mirrors that reflect Jesus, not those who absorb all the attention. What the gospel does and what grace does is destroys pride and instills humility, exalting Christ alone. And then he brings restoration. Verse 9, it continues. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ comes in humility. He shatters pride by grace and then he restores us to the Father. What it says here is that in, in, in what Christ does, every knee bowing and every tongue confessing, acknowledging that he is God, that's what we were designed to do. And so there's restoration that comes because of what Christ has done. In humility, he restores that, rest, he brings restoration and then he establishes a pattern. If you go back to verse 5 of chapter 2, it says that in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And so the pattern that we just walked through is the pattern that he says that we should live with others, that we can be gracious with others because he's been gracious with us. That we can, we can do these things that he's called us to, that we can live in humility because Christ has lived in humility before us, that we can restore in relationships because Christ has done that restoration before us, that we have this a pattern to, to live by that he's established for us. And so what then is our response? What's our next step? What does scripture call us to? And I believe there's six things that I kind of want to walk through just really quick for us. That our next step is humility. And humility, in the words of, of, of one author, says that it's the joyful self-forgetfulness. Another author says, C.S. Lewis says this, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, not self-degradation. It's not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. What humility does is it moves from a self-fixation to a self-forgetfulness. That I can forget myself because I trust that God has remembered me. I can forget myself because Christ laid aside all the things that were valuable to him to come and humble himself and serve us and bring restoration. So the first thing that I think that we do, what scripture invites us to, is to rehearse the gospel. These are going to be on the screen. There's not a spot for you to fill them out there, but they'll be on the screen if you want to write these down, that we rehearse the gospel. Milton Vinson, the author of one of my favorite books, a book called The Gospel Primer for Christians, that was written specifically for this point of rehearsing the gospel, says this, that according to Scripture, God deliberately designed the gospel in such a way to, as to strip me of pride and leave me without any grounds for boasting in myself whatsoever. Preaching the gospel to myself daily mounts a powerful assault 
against pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates pride more than daily reminders of the glory of my God, the gravity of my sin, the crucifixion of God's own son in my place. The gracious love of God that has been lavished on me because of Christ's death. Pride literally wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel. First, we rehearse the gospel. Secondly, we renew our affections. Andrew Murray says this, that humility is the displacement of self and the enthronement of God. Pride is this distorted, this, this distorted, deceptive, destructive focus and love for self. And the only way that pride can be usurped or displaced is our, if our hearts fall in love with something that is greater, something more beautiful, something that is more lovely than self. Thomas Chamberlain says this, that it, it's the explosive power of a new affection that replaces this desire to love self. It's something that's greater, more beautiful. It sweeps us off our feet. The gospel is that thing that is more, it is greater. Jesus is the one who is greater and more beautiful that replaces that sinful self-focus and allows us to be self-forgetting. Jesus sweeps us off of our feet and causes us to love him more. And for some of us, maybe in this room this morning, it is the power of a new, it is the, the explosive power of a new affection because you've never put your, your faith in Jesus before. You've never come to that point where you've recognized your sin and said, I need Jesus. And so today, that may be that moment where you say, God, I need you, I need you to replace the affection for self with an affection for you because you are more beautiful. But for many of you, you have trusted Christ for salvation. You did put your faith in Jesus. And so today it's not a new affection, it's a renewed affection. It's the explosive power of a new affection that comes as we spend time in God's, with God in God's word and with him in prayer and worship and rehearsing the gospel. It comes as we spend time with God's people in, in community and in corporate worship and rehearsing the gospel with others together that that power of a new affection or renewed affection moves in our hearts that we trust God more and we love God more. We renew our affections and we reorient our hearts. It just simply means this, that we confess our sins and reorient our hearts, turning to him again, the one who gives us life and breath and everything that we confess and repent. We reorient our hearts. What pride does is turn our hearts away from God. But what we need to do in these moments is reorient by saying, God, forgive me. I confess and I repent. I turn from that sin that's destroying me. To put my trust in you, that we serve and celebrate. See, what pride does is it doesn't allow any room for us to celebrate others or to serve others. It declares that we alone are worthy. But, but what we do in response is we choose to be servants to lay down our rights and say, I'm serving others and to celebrate others rather than trying to point the finger itself or, or, or in, in that despondency, talk about how bad you are and muse over those things so people look at you. Rather, I'm going to serve others and I'm going to celebrate others. It's going to stir those affections. We're going to boast in our weakness. Paul says this, but 
He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest in me. It's our weakness. We sang it just a second ago. That is the greatest canvas to display God's strength. It's the greatest backdrop to display, to display God's beauty and strength in our own lives. And then we daily surrender. Daily surrender. Matthew 23, Jesus says, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's God's grace to knock us off that throne when we've tried to put ourselves there because we don't belong there. We were never meant to sit there. In 1 Peter, Peter writes this. That he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up in due time. Humility, surrendering completely to Christ and resting in his mighty arm, trusting that he's the one who will lift us up in the right time is the safest and the greatest place for us to be. I want to close by giving us just a quick picture. If you'll just give me a second, I'm going to grab something real quick. Just a quick word picture of, of what we mean by daily surrender. Just to, to kind of help us in seeing this reality in our own lives. And what pride does is, is it puts us in this place where we stand up above people. I know y'all are so worried right now. <laughs> I am too, to be honest. Like, a little girth. I'm not sure this thing will hold it. What pride does is it puts us up above everybody else. It says, no, I'm, I'm here, you're there. It puts us on this pedestal and says, look at me, look at me. When we talk about surrender, I think that there's some levels of that. And, and one of those ways is that we just, that we sit down, that it's a yielding. And we sit down and we say, God, I yield to you. I'm not going to put myself above everybody. I'm going to sit, I'm going to yield to you. And this is a, a way that we surrender by just sitting and saying, God, you, I put you in charge. But there's another way, and, and maybe it's not just sitting, but it's kneeling. And this is a recognition, another way that we surrender, and that recognition that, God, I need you. Not I'm just letting you have your way, but I desperately need you. I don't have any recourse. I don't have any way to make things happen. This is a, a place of submission to God, right? This is a place that we say, God, I, I don't have it what, it what it takes. I bow to you because you're king. But there's another level, one more level that I would say of, of, of surrendering to God. Maybe this, is, maybe this is, I'm just saying, God, I submit to you. But surrender looks a lot like this, that truly we lay down all of our rights. Truly to say, God, I have no power whatsoever to lay ourselves down under the mighty hand of God and say, you lift me up in the due time. I mean, what can I do from here? What can I do from this spot? I have no protection. I'm completely vulnerable. Christ is my only hope. Daily surrendering, daily saying, God, you, you alone, are my hope. You alone are my joy. You alone are who I want to pick, I want people to see. The fear comes when we don't think that God will raise us up. But the reality is that we look at scripture and we know that 
This is exactly what Christ did for us, isn't it? I mean, he didn't lay down on the ground, face down and surrender, but he laid himself on a cross. He laid his life down on a cross, sacrificing his own life for our sake. And the power of God that he promises when one day as we lay down under the mighty hand of God and one day in due time he'll lift us up, that hand lifted Christ out of the tomb. It was powerful enough to do that. And it's powerful enough for us to lift us up in due time when we surrender the way that Christ has called us to surrender. We can believe God. We can hold him at his word. We can trust that he will do what he says we will do. And the fact is what we do here is that every time we gather, what we're doing and singing the songs that we sing and opening up his word is that reminder that, God, you surrendered first. You laid your life down first. And it's the pattern that I have for laying my life down. That if I want to kill pride, it's going to happen because I surrender to you. Another one of the ways that we do this, and this is not, in your, not, not one of the points for this morning, but another way that we do this on a regular basis in the church at large, and one of the gifts that God has given us is the opportunity to celebrate communion together as a reminder of Christ laying down his life as a sacrifice for us. And as the band comes back up, just to, just to remind us of that, just another, that practice that Christ graciously gave us to reorient our hearts to him. Because when we take the bread, what it represents there for us, it represents the Christ's body that was broken for us. When we drink the juice, it represents that Christ's blood was poured out for us on our behalf to establish a new covenant, a new relationship where we have a relationship with him. We're reminded of God's power over sin and death and power over the rebellion of our, of our pride in those moments. And, and, and when we come to this moment on a regular basis here as we gather for this family meal, there's, there's nothing particularly exciting about a piece of maybe stale cracker and some juice. There's nothing magical about what's in those cups, but it's a reminder of what Christ has done for us. But it is a family meal. And by that I mean this, that if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, there's really no reason for you to grab that cup. Rather than taking that, I would invite you to take Jesus, to take Christ, to where you sit today to, to say, God, I repent of my sins. I recognize that you are the God of the universe and none like you. And I put my hope and my faith in you and you alone. For those of, us who, those of you who are a follower of Jesus and this is your, you, you do, you're part of the family of God, I invite you to be reminded this morning as we've said multiple times on the, on the night that Jesus, the very eve before he would go to the cross, before he was arrested and betrayed by his own disciple, that it says this in 1 Corinthians. It says, when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you in remembrance. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup, a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
So this morning, as, as the band plays, it really is an opportunity for you on your own and in, in, in your own time. Maybe you need to sit for just a moment and just be reminded of what Christ has done before you. Maybe you just need to be still and humble yourself before the Lord before you go and grab the elements in the back. Again, there's nothing magical about them, but it is a great reminder. And so as the band plays, it's really on your, on your time is when, whenever you feel comfortable and ready to go grab. There's three stations. Just grab, grab in the back. And we're not going to get together, back together to take it. So take it whenever you're ready. And then join us as we sing together and celebrate God's goodness and his invitation to us to come to him. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this moment and we pray that, God, you would move. Stir in our hearts our affections for you. Remind us of your, of your glory and your majesty and the, the gravity of our sin, and the love that was poured out for us on the cross and the new life that you've given us. May your grace truly destroy, shatter pride this morning. And as we take the cup, as we take the bread and the, and the juice this morning, let this reminder stir in us the explosive power of a renewed affection. May it reorient our hearts to you and give us the fuel to serve and to celebrate others and ultimately to surrender. It's in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of our Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you like this podcast, subscribe to it or share it with some friends. You can also check out some of our other podcasts like Making History Parenting Podcasts, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're thankful for you.